You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to Senior RX Radio, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Senior RX Radio is brought to you by the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists, the ASCP. ASCP is devoted to optimal medication management and improved health care outcomes for older adults. Learn more at our website, ASCP.com. Welcome to Senior RX Radio. My name is Jaron Stout. And my name is Joanne Pio, and we are the new Senior RX Radio hosts. And today we are still in lovely Dallas, Texas for the ASCP's annual meeting. And it is the 50th anniversary and it has just been a blast to be here. And we're very pleased to have our guests here for this session. Very, very happy. We have two amazing guests. And yesterday they did a session on the new guidelines from the American Diabetes Association, um, the 2019 guidelines. So we have Kristen Meyer and Wendy Mobley-Berkstein. Hopefully I didn't butcher your name. Wonderful. So welcome, guys. I I mean, I'm just like floored because there's a lot of changes in the 2019 guidelines. One of the first changes that you guys... um, notated during your presentation is the A1C targets. Before, when I was in school, I learned, you know, for basically all patients, you want your A1C less than 7% or less than 8% if they have a risk of hypoglycemia. But in your presentation, you showed that there's different targets depending on core morbidities and um, mental status. Can you guys expand on that? Right. For my practice in long-term care, it was important to me to really um, focus on that, and it gives a lot of guidance about functionality. And so um, I, too, remember historically the American Geriatric Society, I would think of it greater than 80, less than 8%. Um, But now this really provides a lot more guidance, um, helps us to classify patients according to their functionality, and I really appreciate that. It was important to me to share this information from a practice perspective, the way that I experience it, and have Wendy come alongside me as really the expert in diabetes that I work with to really just provide some more um, explication of the guidelines. So I would just say that, you know, it's it's been really nice to be able to really look at the, the information and look at it across the continuum of life. So now we're looking at more, you know, if you have those people who have a longer expectancy in the life continuum, maybe we want to have them a little bit tighter controlled, but still not as tight controlled as maybe the general population versus those, versus those people who, you know, have a more limited life expectancy, who are more chronically ill, who are probably not going to um, maybe live more than about 10 years or so. We're probably going to want to be a little bit looser with the way that we're treating those patients. So one thing that I saw is that if we, for patients that have few coexisting chronic illnesses, we want the A1C target to be less than 7.5%. For patients that have multiple chronic illnesses or two impacted activities of daily living or even mild to moderate cognitive impairment, we want the A1C to be less than 8%. And then for patients in long-term care facilities, Um, or skilled nursing facilities and patients with end-stage chronic illnesses like end-stage renal disease or um, 
moderate to severe cognitive um, impairment, we want the A1C to be less than 8.5%, which is a big change for um, all pharmacists in the community setting, in the hospital, as well in um, long-term care. What do we want our target to be? Yeah, and I would I would just say that the, along with giving us a guideline as far as the A1C was concerned, they also gave us a, a better framework of what we want those blood glucoses to look like. So what is our fasting blood glucose going to look like? It's not going to be 70 or 130. We're going to actually have a higher um, you know, fasting blood glucose. And now they even talked about you know, trying to avoid that nocturnal hypoglycemia by now giving us a bedtime glucose to kind of shoot for as well. This has been a huge emphasis for me as a consultant. I've been building my own practice for a couple of years and it's grown significantly. One of the things that helped me grow is that I put a huge emphasis on helping facilities get rid of sliding scale insulin, which is a ridiculously large amount of people taking it that totally don't need it at all. And one of the things that I've used, and this, this new change is great because it raises it even higher to 8.5, whereas before I think it was between 7 and 8, right? So um, this is a huge education point that we as pharmacists can be using to get rid of sliding scale. Because what if their A1C is 6.9% and they have COPD and CHF and they're 78 and they're on sliding scale insulin? It's totally unnecessary, not needed. And this is one of the things that I've been educating nurses as well, because like, I will put in an effort on a patient just like that. I will get rid of their sliding scale. A nurse will come in the next morning and just worry to heck that there's no sliding scale. And they will call the doctor and have it restarted. And so I've had to do educations in my facilities to teach them, hey, guess what? Their A1C goal is 8% with this patient. We don't need sliding scale. In fact, Another thing that the American Diabetes Re uh, Association recommends that uh, is often overlooked, three oral agents before the use of rapid-acting insulin. And I don't know if that changed in the new guidelines. I don't think it did, but... It hasn't really changed. I think the, the biggest thing is now that we have these, these kind of better um, look at an A1C. So, you know, if, if your patient is 6.9 likely they're having a boatload of hypoglycemia and then some hyperglycemia and it's averaging out to 6.9. So again, we're, we're in this area where we could potentially be putting them at risk for falls, for, you know, coma. I mean, there are a lot of different things. And so we're, you know, potentially risking their life by continuing these, you know, short acting agents that they may not need. Yeah, in the short term, hypoglycemia is my number one concern in my diabetic patients. I think you make some good points about simplification of drug regimens, which we talked about yesterday, deprescribing, which we went over briefly yesterday. I think that is where our focus needs to be, and that's where the consultant pharmacist can come in and really serve as a great resource for the prescriber. Um, I'm currently experiencing uh, a situation where the prescribers are really reaching out to us as consultant pharmacists and says, how can I clean up some of this? Right. And it's funny because when you look at the SNF guidelines, the SNF, uh, uh, the regulations, two of the interactions or the two of the adverse events that they point out the most is hypoglycemia and bleeding events with your anticoagulants. So over treatment, what, where are we relevant there? That's a huge relevancy. We as consultant pharmacists that should be grabbing that and rolling with it. Um, and I think that when we get 
people off sliding scale, once again, that decreases nursing time, it decreases cost of testing supplies because they are expensive. And it decreases the risk of them getting tagged by the state survey for having expired insulin. So, in fact, when I started to implement a collaborative practice, I had a physician who was reluctant until he saw what I was able to help him do with cutting back on sliding and scale insulin. Because he told me he'd been working on it for six months, and then I came in and, like, within one month, I had, like, had it cut in half. And so he was blown away, and that's what's helped me grow my business significantly. And if we as pharmacists, this is our realm. This is where we can make an impact. I think it's a huge opportunity in collaborative practice. My first success in my prescribers at my facility was with anticoagulation, as you mentioned, a big high-risk drug. And I think our second opportunity coming up right now, um, just taking advantage of that opportunity to partner with them on management of diabetic patients. So in the new 2019-88 guidelines, there was a lot of changes in how we choose our drugs. So. Um, let's start with insulin. So before, you know, the initiating insulin was based on A1C. If there's an A1C greater than 10, we start insulin. I don't know if that was 2018 and 2017 as well. But now what I saw in the guidelines is that if you see catabolism or symptoms of hyperglycemia, not necessarily an A1C greater than 10, but if you have that um, polyuria or the polydipsia, you can start insulin. And then with the oral agents, we, we still have first line is metformin and then lifestyle changes. But then we have um, subcategories of what medications we should use when. So what I would what I would say definitely is, is that, you know, we're in at least in my clinic, we have an internal medicine clinic that I that I consult and the basic premise on that is, is when those patients come in, a lot of them are over 65. You know, we're looking at, they've been on three or four um, anti-hyperglycemic agents and they still are not at goal. And you know, their A1C isn't over 10, but they have pill burden, they're having trouble remembering to take all of the medications. And so sometimes going to a basal insulin is a better choice and being able to pull back on some of those oral agents. So we're really able to make a difference for them and, and how we're, you know, how we're working that. But I would say that, you know, for the first time this algorithm has really given us a little bit of guidance on, you know, it was always metformin first and lifestyle and, and behavior change and then willy-nilly anything else you want to add, you know. So now it's does the person have established ASCBD? And if they do, let's look at the GLP-1s because they have proven cardiovascular benefit. If the person is adverse to an injectable, then look at an SGLT2 because there's also proven cardiovascular benefit with those agents. If they have heart failure or they have CKD, looking at the SGLT2s first because those have proven benefit in both CKD and heart failure. So one of the questions we had after yesterday was about the declared TIMI 58 trial. So that one was about dipagliflozin, uh, and that is now probably going to be um, a higher recommended SGLT2 because of its great outcomes in reducing hospitalizations from heart failure, as well as providing some benefit to those patients that have heart failure. So we're looking at a lot of different kind of things coming out now, which, you know, I, I kind of enumerated on yesterday, I've been a CDE since 2010, and since about the end of 2011 until now, there are 26 new studies that have come out just on cardiovascular outcomes. 
And so it's amazing now to have all of this information, but then to keep it straight is the difficult <laughs> the difficult part. Right, and Wendy, you mentioned yesterday that now the ADA guidelines are more of a living document yes. because the rapid pace at which this new information is being published about these drugs, and to me it just re-emphasizes the need for the consultant pharmacist to come along that, that, alongside that prescriber and be that drug expert that they need. Uh, applying the guidelines judiciously is one of my mantras. So another thing that, so I, I personally, I have like a, a triple cocktail that I always go to to help get rid of sliding scale. And I'm just curious if you guys have that same thing and what it is so that I, I'm, I can gauge if I'm on the same page here. Well, of course, especially when I'm teaching students, uh, we're looking at, is the person on metformin, you know, of course looking at their EGFR and making sure that everything is, is great there, but looking, are they on metformin, have they been on metformin in the past and didn't tolerate it, um, kind of what was the reason they didn't tolerate it, because a lot of times if they didn't change their diet, that's the reason they're not tolerating it, you know, and of course in my practice they're, ambula they're ambulatory, so if they haven't cut back on their carbs, they probably have diarrhea. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, there's actually no mechanism that's ever been shown for that, but however, it still happens, and you notice that when patients start to pull back on the carbs a little bit more, they don't have the diarrhea anymore from metformin. So we talk a lot about, like, what were the things that you were doing while you were taking it, and did you make any of those changes, or did you just start taking the med and never make any changes? So we talk about that. But then I would say, to, for me, it becomes a, a little bit more of learning about the patient, meeting them where they're at, and then trying to figure out what's the next drug that's going to be great. So one of the things I touched on yesterday is our providers in my clinic really like to add DPP-4s. And there's nothing wrong with DPP-4, great drug. But if you need to lower the person's A1C by more than about 0.5 to 0.8%, you're not going to get there with a DPP-4. So I think that it's important to, to think about it from that, from that nature. But the nice thing about it is, is that the DPP-4s are also doing CBOTs, and there have been some really great outcomes that have come from that too. So being able to utilize those, and I see perhaps using those in the elderly population um, in, a, in a better way because you can actually use those for a longer period of time before you have to start reducing doses or taking them off because of EGFR. Yeah, I'd be curious as to what your cocktail is or your approach, but I think for me, it really, again, goes back to looking at that patient. Many of my patients are really in those two lower echelons of risk or, or functionality, as you may say. Um, I've got the 8 8.5%, 8%. So sometimes it really focuses on just realizing what the goals are. Um, and depending on whether the patient's on metformin, I think metformin's still a pretty good drug, even for our oldest adults. A few years ago, they re kind of realigned the renal prescribing criteria to help us with that. Um, just maximizing basal insulin to make sure we're covering people throughout the day and focusing on whatever their lifestyle is and helping them to be able to experience life, quality of life. Right, yeah. Did you want to know mine, or is that something? Absolutely. Okay. So I usually it's the Medicaid population I'm trying to get away from the sliding scale and the long-term care wing. So um, I always pick three, like a DPP, but 
Now keep in mind, when I do this, it's to get rid of sliding scale, right. to replace it. So the 0.5% A1C, absolutely that's relevant. But in this case, if they use their, their sliding scale 50%, then what I'm usually 50% or higher, I'll add one at a time or two at a time, depending. Metformin, Genovio, or Trigenta, and then Actos. Mm -hmm. um, but whenever I do that, I always look for their kidney function, because which one should we use, Trigenta or Genovia? And then I always look at, see if they have CHF, or if, if any edema is present. So I rule out contraindications, make sure it's appropriate for that patient. And I put that in my recommendation. Hey, here's what I think we should do, and here's the stuff that says why this is a good regimen for this patient. And I think that's something that we often overlook as consultants. We've gotten regimented in looking at the surface, throwing out a recommendation, and letting everyone else make the clinical decision making. When we should present the data to make the clinical decision and help them make it correct. I totally agree with that. And I think that what you're doing is, a, is good because you're, you know, when you think about the mechanism of action, I think that that's the thing is you're giving them that rationale. So, exactly. you know, I, I want to use these agents because they're going to help with that postprandial glucose, right? And so that's going to help us get rid of then that slotting scale insulin so you're not having to poke them as much. Um, you know, we talked yesterday about a lot of our patients have dementia, um, you know, and so you never know when you go in there to give them their their injection of insulin at that particular time, whether or not they're going to accept it, you know, because they may not be agreeable at that particular moment. And so then how are we going to combat that? So then giving them something that's going to work on that postprandial glucose is a good idea. Well, thank you both so much for coming on today's show. Your session was great. But of course, the 2019 American Diabetes Association guidelines, it's a hefty packet. So I highly recommend all of you pharmacists to check it out because there are some great, cha um, great changes in there. So thank you guys for coming on. Thank Absolutely. you. Thank you. Been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Senior Rx Radio. Be sure to share this podcast with your fellow consultant pharmacists and pharmacy associates to learn more about better outcomes for older adult patients. Join us on the web at ASCP.com.